Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 323. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. And in episode 323, we went over some documents that were in the police files, but not in the DA's file. This episode generated a lot of listener questions, so let's get right into them. All right, let's first discuss some thoughts on the fan page from listener Kristen. She shared four really good questions, and I'd like to hit them here on the show. Okay. Her first question is, if you were desperately missing your murdered wife and she appeared to you, wouldn't you remember every single detail about the encounter? And she's talking about Ken's recollection here of when he claims he saw a ghost or a spirit of Keo. Mm-hmm. I, I, I saw that, and I think I even commented on Kristen's post, but I don't know that any of us can answer that. You know what I mean? I mean, because we see questions like this all the time. Like, I think if this happened to me, I would react in a certain way or remember things a certain way. But, I mean, this isn't like something you're going to pull out of a textbook. So he's he's recounting what he's claiming is an experience where he saw his wife reincarnate, I guess, kind of sitting there talking yep. to him. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess there's just there's no way that I can intelligently answer how, you know, how much of that that he would recall. And I don't think any of us can. Yeah, and like you said on the show, it is kind of a personal thing. It's not really our place to say. Yeah, and it's and, and I don't even like consider it like a privacy issue or anything like that. I just think that for someone who doesn't believe the way Ken Gove believes and has never experienced what Ken Gove claims to experience, for me to sit here and make judgments based on what I think that experience should have been, it's just, I just can't. Fair enough. She also asked about Rosie saying Judy saw the three men in the tan car around 2 or 3 a.m., and then you followed up with they came back at 7 a.m. She wants to know if that was an assumption or if that was in another report. Okay, so what Kristen's asking here is, in the report that I read in the episode, it said that Rosie told police that Judy had told her that Judy had seen a brown or tan car around 2.30 a.m., and then I said, and then she came back around at 7 a.m., and that's when she witnessed the attack. And Kristen's right here and pointing out, that because I followed that up with, so that was the first time she saw the car, and then she saw it again in another pass at 7 a.m. 
And so Kristen's point was, it didn't say that in the report. So where are we coming up with the idea that there was a second pass? Gotcha. Because the report just says 2 to 3 a.m. And it, it comes from a conglomeration of all the reports, everything Rosie said, and breaking down some verbiage in that report. So she says in that report that she first saw the car at 2 to 3 a.m. Okay, and then we know that it was Rosie who convinced Judy to talk to Ken about what she saw because she saw it happen at the same time as the murder. We know from all of Judy's statements, it's always been she thinks that she witnessed the attack. I think she says between 6 and 7 Mm a.m. is when she thought she saw the attack. There's also some things we can pull out of what Ken Gove told the psychic John Catchings when he had made a bench of the fact that she had saw them once and then came back and saw them again. And then we have the fact that Rosie says that Judy changed her story, but she says she changed her story from she saw Kiao being pulled away from the car and then later changed it to she saw the men dragging Kiao into the car. So she doesn't say anything about the timing or any of that as far as what changed. So the consistency between all of these different stories, has always been that she witnessed the attack early in the morning, around 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. So when it says that she first saw them at 2 to 3 a.m., when she says she changed the story about the direction they were being dragged, between what Ken told police and what he told John Catchings, when you take all these different reports and all these different accounts together, it seems consistent that she saw the attack happen around 7 o'clock in the morning, around the time Kiao was killed, but that she had made another pass earlier in the middle of the night at 2 or 3 a.m. And also, by the way, that's consistent with what Jesse James Swindell told me when I talked to him, when he had told me, and I didn't quite get the details as far as times, and he didn't remember, but he had said something along the lines that they had been around the block a couple of times mm-hmm. and had seen the car a couple of times. But again, he always, still to this day, says he remembers it being a white car. Gotcha. Okay, and you just talked about Judy Sinkiel specifically being dragged into the car, and that was another point that Kristen made here, too. She writes, also, in one place you say woman, and in another you identify the woman the men had as Kiao. And did Simons actually say that Judy identified the woman as Kiao? Rosie Simons, I don't think, specifically said that. The reason that I said that Judy said that she specifically saw Kiao being dragged into the car comes from the first police report before her affidavit, where it specifically says that she saw the complainant, Kiao, being dragged into the car. Uh, also, Ken Gove's statement to Catchings, where he said she saw Kiao being dragged into the car. Okay, so did Judy even know Kiao? No, I don't believe she did. So remember that Rosie Simons had to introduce Judy to Ken. Ken did not know her, I, so I would assume that Kiao did not know her either. There is no indication whatsoever that Judy Gonzalez knew either Ken or Kiao. So when we say Kiao, it's it's based on, there was this one report, like I said, that came out before the affidavit was written, where it said specifically that it was Kiao. Now, does that mean that she specifically knew that was Kiao? I don't think so. I think that it, it could be an assumption or just taking a kind of a leap of logic where Judy sees in the early morning hours a woman, a dark-haired woman being attacked and dragged into or from a car or whatever, and then finds out that a woman was killed in that exact location at that exact time or about that time on that morning who was oriental and had dark hair in her mind could have just, okay, you know, you're, you're assuming the person that I saw then probably was that person. Mm -hmm. She actually specifically says that she says that her sister told her that that woman you saw got killed yesterday morning. So that I think maybe has made it in her mind where the woman she saw was Kiao and therefore stated it as, I saw her get attacked, 
when in fact she probably didn't see or recognize her at all. I think those are probably assumptions and just kind of leaps of logic based on the information at hand. I don't think that she specifically knew what Kia looked like because again, Ken did not know Judy. Rosie had to make that introduction. Okay, and then one last point here from Kristen. She says, I'm also wondering if Judy thought maybe Ronnie was involved in Kia's death and made the whole thing up to throw off police. Do you think Judy was trying to throw the police off here, Bob? I don't know. I mean, certainly there was a point in time where I thought this looked pretty rock solid. And and to be honest, there are still a lot of factors that indicate that she's telling the truth here. And, And one big one is, if you're going to make up a lie, why involve a 12-year-old kid in your lie and rely on them to keep the story straight? And it's not like, and we're going to get into not this Sunday, but next Sunday, more about Ronnie Blackwell. And you'll see that there was no reason in November of 1991 for Judy to be trying to throw anybody off the scent of Ronnie Blackwell. Sure. He, he wasn't on the radar yet. So literally there is zero heat on Ronnie at this time. I can tell you that much right now. The police weren't even considering Ronnie Blackwell in any way, shape, or form until Judy comes forward and says she saw this attack while she was out looking for Ronnie who was missing. So by her coming forward with this information, it goes from the police not looking anywhere near the direction of Ronnie Blackwell to all of a sudden his name is on their radar and her family's being questioned and she's they've had run-ins with the law. They don't want to deal with police. The easy thing to do kind of from a distance is to look at this and say, oh, well, she's trying to throw him off. She's saying it was three black guys in a Latino guy or three black guys and a white guy that she saw do it, you know, throw him away from Ronnie. But it was there was never any heat on Ronnie. It's not like the police were knocking on her door and saying that, you know, we think Ronnie did it. And she's like, no, 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 no. I saw somebody else do it. It was nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then again, as far as, well, you know, maybe she's just looking for reward money. And I think she was interested in the reward money and probably was an indicator to get her to come forward. It was probably, excuse me, a trigger to get her to come forward. But at the same time, if you're going to make up something to get reward money, you knew, especially Ken Goes reward, required a conviction. Say she completely made the story up, a tan car with three black guys and one Latin guy. If that's completely made up, how in the world could that possibly lead to a conviction? She didn't give them any information that could lead to a conviction. Uh, and, and then obviously they end up having nothing. The person that got convicted had nothing to do with anything to do with her story, but that's beside the point. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So those are the two kind of, if we're looking at she's lying and there's motivations there, uh, one would be for reward money. And she didn't give them enough information to get any reward money. 
she might point the investigation in a certain direction, but it's not going to it's not going to lead to an arrest. You know, even if they ended up finding three black guys and a Latino guy that committed the crime, it wouldn't have been from her lead. They had to go much further and she probably still wouldn't have been eligible for the reward based on that that vague general information. Uh, and so then the other one is to turn attention away from Ronnie Blackwell. Well, there was no attention on Ronnie Blackwell. So what she actually did was bring his name into the investigation by doing so. So that doesn't make a lot of sense either. So, you know, we're left with the most, the simplest, if we're looking at the basic, most obvious, simple solution, is that she's telling the truth. But we have some changes in the story. So then we start to think, maybe she feels guilty. Now, let's go back to the keys for a minute. Remember what Jim Clemente said. His initial thought, because we're all like, well, the killer put him back because of remorse, or the mailman picked him up, or something. And Jim's first thought was, I bet it is the mother or girlfriend or wife or spouse, something of the person that committed the crime. So now take that, which at the time was like, well, maybe. And now look at some of the information we have. You have the neighbor right next. Okay, so then who would possibly know whose keys those are? I don't know. The neighbor might know that. Mm -hmm. Who would know when is a good time when you could walk up and stick them in the mailbox without alerting any attention? I don't know. The neighbor. And then you have... Complete speculation, but say, for example, maybe Ronnie Blackwell was involved or connected or something somehow, and he had those keys, maybe then they get put in there by the mother or the girlfriend, girlfriend. just like Jim Clemente said. So that's a possibility for sure. I mean, that's all it is, is a possibility. And I'm not even like trying to be coy or hide something that I know. I don't. I'm not saying that I think Ronnie Blackwell did it. But as we're answering this question as far as... Could she be trying to cover for Ronnie? I don't think so. But I think a scenario that is more probable than her just completely making it up for reward money or her completely making it up in order to protect Ronnie, I think the scenario that is the most probable is that Ronnie somehow was involved. Either he knows the people who did it or he was there but didn't participate or even that he was part of the group that did it and maybe even did participate and judy feels guilty judy let's say is a you know is a good person she has a conscience it's killing her four months go by of this eating away at her and is trying to maybe point ken in the direction of the people that did it while at the same time trying to minimize ronnie's role in it setting it up in a way that you know he wasn't part of the group that did it but still somehow bring justice to other people I don't know. That seems more likely to me than the fact that, and again, uh, I'm not going to say because of psychic abilities, but just based on a nice, solid line of logic, what John Catching said, and that's basically what he said, too. And I think it's it's the more likely scenario of the three we just discussed uh, would be exactly that, that she's wanting to help and trying to minimize Ronnie's role, that she did, in fact, witness something but she's changing the story up, even to the fact where you have she's saying it was a tan or brown car. And her nephew, the 12 year old, is saying that he saw, no, it was a white Z28 Camaro. Well, if, if she is complicating and changing certain details, so say they were together, they did see something happen, and she is changing some details to try to minimize Ronnie's role, and Jesse James Swindell 
isn't she's maybe not involving him that much again in this in this scenario judy is a good person right in the scenario we're presenting this make-believe scenario she's a good person who's trying to do her best to do something right she's not wanting to try to manipulate the 12 year old because she's smart enough to know that that is going to raise up red flags she starts telling him to lie and then he's going to tell somebody she told him to lie and then she's going to be in trouble so maybe his version is closer to accurate than her version or maybe she's influenced some of his memory. I don't know. So, I mean, this is a lot of rambling, and it's a whole lot of... Consider this, I guess, a brainstorming session for all of you to think. But I want you all to think about it with an open mind. That's what I'm trying to do, too. And so, just like you, when I when I read what Ken said to John Catchings, and I've read Rosie Simon's statements, it's starting to feel like this statement by Judy Gonzalez and Jesse James that at one point I thought was pretty relevant is maybe much less relevant but then as we break, take it a step further and start breaking down, well, what would be the motives to lie? We run into the same roadblocks we were before. Lying to protect Ronnie doesn't make sense. Lying to for a reward also doesn't make sense. Lying to change bits of the pieces of a story of something they actually witnessed in order to minimize a role makes more sense out of those three, in my opinion. All right. Next, we have a message here from Mark. He writes, did Jesse James Swindell ever say what time they, he and Aunt Mama Judy, finally did locate Ronnie and where he was when he was located? No, Jesse James Swindell never did, and I never have on the record where Judy did either. Ronnie, two years after the fact, told Detective Watts that they found him around midnight, and that's why Watts dropped it. But no, I, I've never seen in any of the police reports that either Jesse James Swindell or Judy ever said when they actually found him. Okay, and then we have this message from Julie. Julie writes, I have a hard time keeping everyone straight. I thought Kenneth Ray Williams was the pastor. I thought he was walking around practicing sermons. Did I completely make that up? Also, Crime Stoppers again? So I just want to clear this one up really quick for Bob. Julie, you're, you're not alone in this. And the reason for that is, so, okay, the preacher that walked around practicing sermon was a man named Robert Moffat. Now, there was also in that same neighborhood, Kenneth Ray Williams, the convicted felon, who's another African-American guy, who was accused of being vulgar and harassing women. But the stories kind of blend together. Like Rosie Simons described a strange acting black man that always walks around the neighborhood between 7 and 8 a.m. at the same time Keow walks, who talks to what she said are make-believe people and is sometimes rude to women. Gladys Blanford made a similar statement about the preacher Robert Moffat. But then Rosie's follow-up statement... She's shown a picture of Kenneth Ray Williams and identifies him as the strange acting black man. So now we have Kenneth Ray Williams and Robert Moffat both walking around the track, talking to themselves, being rude to women. So that's where the confusion comes in. Now, I was hoping to get into this in this week's Friday follow-up, so I'm glad you brought it up, Mike, because I think that Rosie Simons is wrong here. One of the reasons for that, so in this week's episode that's going to drop in two days on Sunday, that's all about Kenneth Ray Williams, we find out that Kenneth Ray Williams, according to his family, number one, wasn't in that neighborhood very long. So he wouldn't be described as what Rosie said is a man who lives in the neighborhood and regularly walks that route because he was only there for a short period of time. Also, it's said by his family that he always sleeps in. He gets up way after everybody else. So not the kind of guy that's getting up at seven every morning to exercise by walking around the track. So I think that the person that Rosie Simon saw was, in fact, Robert Moffat and was the same person that Gladys Blanford saw and everyone else had reported the strange-acting black man that was talking to themselves walking. That was Robert Moffat walking around practicing his sermons 
And sounds like he may have been rude to women when they walked by as well. But I do not think Rosie Simons saw Kenneth Ray Williams. I think that she either made that up or was influenced to say that by a police officer who at the time thought that Kenneth Ray Williams was the best suspect. Or we're dealing with cross-race identification, which we can get into in another episode, but is a problem where basically, to put it simply, white people think all black people look alike. Is this, And I know it sounds, and I don't mean to be joking, but it's literally an honest-to-God problem when you look at wrongful convictions and eyewitness identification sure. when you're crossing races. So, like, you know, a white person is more likely to misidentify a black person, and a black person is more likely to misidentify a white person and any time across races like that. So I think that's most likely what happened. I mean, the person that was described by Rosie Simons at 12.15 on the day of the murder in my opinion, was very clearly the preacher, Robert Moffat, and not Kenneth Ray Williams. It became Kenneth Ray Williams much later in the investigation. And again, I think there's a high likelihood that was just due to whether intentional or unintentional influence by the investigating officers when she was shown a photo or just a cross-race misidentification. Okay, next we've got a message from Cam Cam. Cam Cam writes, What type of attorney should a person look for or have to prevent being wrongfully convicted in the first place? It seems like most of these cases have a state-appointed attorney or someone that perhaps doesn't have enough, quote, courtroom fire. Do any of the attorneys from any of these innocence projects represent people who are actually getting wrongfully accused? Well, it's kind of a loaded question. First of all, I want to point out that the fact that a lot of these people have state-appointed attorneys or court-appointed attorneys, that has nothing to do with the quality of the attorney. I mean, there are some really, really, really good public defenders out there and to be truthful, these are people that are very, very dedicated to their practice and to their goal and their mission to help people because they're getting paid a lot less money to do the same work as some private attorneys. Sure. Uh, the issue sometimes with state-appointed attorneys is the fact that they are overworked and under-resourced. So any given public defender may have 50 to 100 cases on their docket at any time. So they can't dedicate tons and tons and tons of time and resources into each case the way you'd like them to. Now, that being said, of course, we don't know on the front end if someone's being wrongfully accused. So, But as far as what types of lawyers should people get to try to avoid these wrongful convictions, uh, what you want is a diligent lawyer. And oftentimes, the best suggestion I could give you is to have a lawyer. Many times, guys like Kenny Snow, guys like Kerry Max Cook, guys like Ed Eights, they all got brought in and spoke to the police without an attorney present because they thought that was the right thing to do. But in fact, it is a bad, bad, bad idea. Hopefully none of you listening ever get arrested. But if you are ever in any kind of circumstance like this, as much as on TV it looks like it's something only guilty people do, if you are ever arrested for anything, the only word that should ever come out of your mouth to the police is lawyer. And that's it and have a lawyer advise you so you don't say something that is going to be used against you later in court. And then beyond that, as far as having an attorney that's going to avoid a wrongful conviction when you're going into a trial, the simple answer is that you need to be diligent. You need to understand your case. Your attorney, even if it's a private attorney, is working on a couple dozen cases at one time, and your case is the only case you're working on. So you need to ask for documents, ask questions, understand what your rights are, get involved, have meetings with the attorney, make sure you discuss trial strategy. You want to know going in, what is their defense going to be? 
Are we presenting alternate suspects? Are we just hoping the prosecution doesn't prove their case? Is there a solid defense? But you're going to have to be involved because no one cares more about your case than you do. But again, let's hope that none of us are ever on trial for murder. All right, this has been a really interesting discussion, but we got to take a quick break here for the ad, and then we'll get right back to it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Next, let's talk Brady. Michelle writes to us, assuming the police withheld the Crime Stoppers tip, that's a pretty clear Brady violation. If they claim it was given to Jesse's former defense attorney, are they still available to testify that the tip was withheld? Well, so here's the thing. We don't have contact, or I don't have contact, with Jesse's defense attorneys. But yes, they are still available. I mean, they're alive and well. They could testify as to whether or not they received the information or not. But honestly, that conclusion can already be drawn by the fact that those reports aren't in the DA's file. So the defense would get their documents from the DA. So if Dallas had an open records policy, like, say, Smith County has, which says any time come in and inspect the file, as opposed to them just turning stuff over in discovery, right. it wasn't there. And to be honest, I think it's far less likely that the police didn't give the tip to the DA's office. I think probably, as I said in the episode, and it's not fact, it's just assumptions based on kind of deductive reasoning as to why that file isn't in the DA's file. My assumption and my guess, it's just a guess, is the most likely scenario is that the 1996 DAs, the ones that were prosecuting Jesse Eldridge, Howard Blackman and gang, removed it from the file. Because again, it was remember, it wasn't just the Crime Stoppers tip that's not in that file. It is every single report that connects Rosie Simons to Judy Gonzalez is not in the Dallas DA's file. At least not the one that was given to me, which had all the police reports in it. So remember, I have all of Watts' notes, and I have all of Royster's notes. And then I get the file from the Dallas Police Department that give me all of Watts' notes and all of Royster's notes. And here's all these files that weren't in the one from the DA. So I think that by the fact that the DA themselves didn't have it is a pretty damn good indication that neither did the defense. Okay, so what if it was turned over? Could it be ineffective assistance of counsel? I don't think so. I mean, maybe, but I don't think this is one of those double-edged sword scenarios like Shauna, where Shauna was so important and so critical to the case that it is definitely Brady if it wasn't turned over, and if it was turned over and the defense didn't raise it, then it would be ineffective assistance of counsel, because that was hers is critical. Now, as far as Kenneth Ray Williams, it is material and exculpatory. If it wasn't turned over, it is absolutely a Brady violation. However, if it was turned over and they had it and didn't use it, I don't necessarily think it would be ineffective assistance in that case because of the fact that Kenneth Ray Williams was put on the stand. He was presented as an alternate suspect. Um, I mean, it, it could be, but that would mean that a judge would have to rule that it would have changed the outcome of trial. And I just don't think that it would have. So in this case, I think a Brady claim would be a slam dunk. But an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, I think, would be unlikely. Because that had to be added into all the other evidence that was presented that Kenneth Ray Williams is a viable alternate suspect. 
However, I think that it does hold more weight because of the fact that, remember, when this Crime Stoppers tip came in, number one, oddly, it was on the anniversary of the murder. It was July 25th, 1995. So four years later on the anniversary, and also remember, Jesse was arrested in October of 1994. And so once he was arrested, there would be no more advertisement for a reward for information leading to the arrest of the person responsible, because as far as anyone knew, they had already arrested the person responsible. So this person went out of their way to call in this tip. So Yeah, it says a lot about the situation. Yeah, it's definitely something to think about. Okay, now Tracy Horton from the fan page was a little confused on the timeline of when the tip came in and how it relates to Brady. So can you clarify this for her, Bob? Yeah, so the the timeline, and it does get a little bit confusing, you know, because we have such a long span in time. So murder happened 1991. Jesse's arrest was October 1994. Jesse's trial was in January of 1996. The tip came in in July of 1995. So here's the relevant time frame. Arrest happens in 94, meaning we're not advertising the tip anymore. The tip comes in one year later in 1995. At that time, Jesse is still in jail awaiting his trial, pre-trial time. And then six months after that, in 1996, is when the trial began. So this tip came in between when Jesse was arrested and when his trial began. So it's still pre-trial period, and I think that was the part people were getting confused about. Okay, and Andy wants to know, how common are Brady violations? I think they were a lot more common than anyone ever knew about. Um, If you think back a few years ago, before there was an Undisclosed and a Truth and Justice and all the other podcasts that have come up along since then, making a murderer, you know, TV shows now, Netflix documentaries, where there are people that are digging into looking at these cases and finding these Brady violations. So again, go back to what I said earlier, where every attorney has a docket with tons and tons and tons of cases on it. Well, they're not maybe going to notice. They don't know if something was withheld, and they don't have time with every case to dig through the prosecutor's file and make sure nothing was missing. They always have kind of relied on trust. So they're, they're relying on the fact that they are officers of the court and that the prosecutors are going to stand by the law and do what they're supposed to do. Well, what we're finding out is that in not every prosecutor, and probably not even the majority of prosecutors, but certainly, especially 70s, 80s, 90s, before we got into what is now the kind of, quote, information era, where there's a lot more information out there, where prosecutors may have cut corners or, I'll say it, cheated. And it may have been an ends justify the means type of thing, where this guy's guilty, I want to make sure he's convicted, and I want to make sure justice is served. So I'm just going to go ahead and pull this document out of the file to make sure that there's no complications because this guy needs to go to prison. But the problem is if you cheat, if you break the rules, you break down the integrity of the entire criminal justice system. So it's not just about getting that guilty person into prison and cutting corners to make it happen. That means that every single conviction that you ever had before or after that can now be called into question because you're not doing things right. So I guess that's that's kind of a rambling soapbox answer. But uh, to answer your question, we have no idea. All I know is it seems like that every time we look into a case that appears to be a high likelihood or a potential wrongful conviction, we almost always find material that is exculpatory material evidence that was withheld from the defense. Brady violation is becoming just an everyday word for anyone that follows any true crime podcast like this anymore. It's sad. 
But I, like I said, I think they're probably more common than we think. And I think there's probably a lot of police agencies and prosecutors that are just not happy about people like us digging back into their old files because they have skeletons in their closets, things that they didn't think mattered. Again, the ends justify the means, but I say that's not true. You have, you have destroyed the integrity of our entire criminal justice system when you do that even once. Okay, and also we got an email from listener Donna about the Michael Morton Act. Bob, Donna writes to us, in addition to the police slash state withholding the Crime Stoppers tip from Jesse's defense at the time of the trial being a Brady violation, it is now also a violation of what is commonly referred to as the Michael Morton Act to have withheld it from his current defense team. Back in the day, as I'm sure you're aware, it was the state's decision to hand over what they determined was material or exculpatory. Michael Morton Act, passed a few years ago in Texas, basically takes that power away from the state. They have to hand over everything in the file to the defense. So do the cops, the labs, everybody. And no court order is supposed to be needed. I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I'm 99.9% sure that the law applies even after a conviction, even if there is no active appeal. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, it was because of Michael Morton's post-conviction work that the law came into effect. And yeah, so I, I guess to put it into pretty simple to understand terms, the Michael Morton Act says, like Donna mentioned, back in the day before the Brady versus Maryland standard, which the, the history behind what we all call a Brady violation was basically a couple of guys in Maryland who were convicted of murder. And prior to the trial, one of the guys said that he did it and the other person, a man named Brady, had nothing to do with the murder. And that information was never shared with Brady's defense team. And he ended up being convicted also and sentenced to death for a murder that the prosecution knew he didn't commit. So that is the case where the Brady standard came from. And the Brady standard states that all material exculpatory evidence must be turned over to the defense. And that's by any government agency. So it's not just the prosecution. As was mentioned there, it's also by the police department, the labs, anyone so the prosecution can't say, this isn't my fault, the police never gave it to us. It's still a Brady violation if the police never gave it to the prosecutor. And it doesn't have to be that it was withheld with any intent. It could have just been an error. They accidentally forgot to give it to them or lost it. It's still a Brady violation because it has to do with your right to a fair trial. You as the defendant have the right to have your defense attorneys be aware of all of that information. But I digress, and getting back to the Brady standard... Prior to Brady, it really was up to the prosecution to turn over whatever they thought they needed to turn over. And so what the Michael Morton Act did was say that you are also now required to turn everything over to the current defense team. So the prosecution, say, in Jesse's Eldridge's case, let's say Jesse's case was from, you know, the 50s or whenever, 60s, 70s, before Brady was a thing. So what the Michael Morton standard does is say that the prosecution has to turn everything over to the current defense. So even if at the time of trial, the prosecution wasn't required by Brady to turn over all the evidence to the defense, they are required to turn it over to the defense now. Meaning that since now Allison is representing Jesse, the prosecution has to turn over everything to Allison. And I believe that the current Dallas DA are a good group of people. They have one of the very few conviction integrity units in the country. They are actively looking at old cases to make sure people receive fair trials. So I don't in any way, shape, or form think that they, the current DA, is withholding anything from Allison. But what I can tell you is when I sent that document to Allison and she went through all of her lists, her reaction to it not being in there was pretty clear 
that document is not in the current DA's file. So it's because of the Michael Morton Act and what the current DA is required to do that I don't believe there is any chance in hell that they are withholding anything. I think that this document was selectively and intentionally removed from the DA's file back in 1995 or 96. Okay, Bob, one last point before we close. Listener Stacy wants to know where the additional documents came from that you discussed in the last episode. Yeah, well, and that goes back to what I was just saying. So my initial open records request was with the Dallas DA's office. And the Dallas DA's office gave me a bunch of files, all the police files that they had. But I'd also had a records request in with the Dallas Police Department. So when they turn things over to the prosecutors, they keep their own files also. They're required to because of record retention laws. So the nice thing about getting the request from the DA's office and then from Dallas PD is you put the two together and make sure that the same files are in both places as they are required to be. And so that's why we have all these additional files. And that's also why we're finding all these problems when we're finding reports in the police file that aren't in the DA's file because the police would have turned over the entire file. And then that's again, and I know I keep saying this over and over again. And again, I want to point out, I'm not accusing anybody. I'm just speculating. But the reason that I think that the DA's office, the old DA's office back in the 90s is the one that removed these files because I believe that the police department would have turned over their entire file. They're not going to selectively remove documents. And if they did, so Don Watts was in charge of the investigation then. So if it was Watts, that said, oh, I don't want this stuff in there about Rosie Simons, and oh, I don't want this Crime Stoppers tip in there anymore. If he pulled those out, he would be smart enough to pull them out and shred them, pull them out of the police department file also. He had control of that file. The fact that they still exist in the police file, but not in the DA's file, to me is a really good indication that the entire file was turned over to the DA's office, and the DA selectively pulled exculpatory documents out of that file. That's my personal hypothesis as to why the police file is a lot thicker than the DA's file when it comes to the police reports. All right, that's going to do it for today's follow-up. Thank you, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. All right, make sure you tune in on Sunday where we finally have a full episode on Kenneth Ray Williams. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Thank you to Amanda Meyer for creating our Friday follow-up logo. And I want to thank our current transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller for all of the work that they have put into transcribing episodes for the last year. And I also want to welcome our three new transcriptionists that will be joining the team and taking over for Sarah Hoyt and Desiree Dunn. Our three new transcriptionists are Britta Bliss, Stephanie McConnell, and Tammy Kenimer. I want to welcome all three of you to the Truth and Justice team, and I want to thank everyone who offered to volunteer their services for the job. Like we said last week, we can only take a couple. We can't have 2,500 people transcribing episodes, but I want to thank everybody who offered And I want to give a big warm welcome to Britta, Stephanie, and Tammy. And as always, I want to thank all of you. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Make sure you join in on the discussion on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. You can like our page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, 
stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. All right, 57 seconds of silence, Michael Bussing. It's 57 now, I've learned, is a better time, you know? Yeah. Of course, you do the music, so you'll figure it out. We, I was there when, when we discussed the new 57-second mm-hmm. time frame. Right. In these episodes. Like, you ask me questions, right? The listeners ask you questions. I am simply a mouthpiece. I am simply a mouthpiece <laughs> for good men and women from around the world. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> you got these audio drama ideas? Yeah. But yeah, that's different. No, we're grooming. That's different. You. I'm not I'm not You a have ho- to be comfortable being you. <laughs> okay. you know? Oh, I see where this is going. We're getting all shrinky today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are you doing? Okay, that, I was goofing around. I was goofing around. All right. Mike, it's my feeding time in ten minutes. Okay, so yes. Weird. Okay, so she's saying that because when we read, okay, so she's saying, man, that was a nice, nice little business I had going on there. It was good. It was really good. People will dig that. It was you a know. great delivery. Mm-hmm. See, I knew to stay out of your way. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the ultimate yes hand guy. Yes, that was great. Like it's always vague answers, yeah. always vague interjections. That's right, Bob. It's always like that. <laughs> yeah. I like the way you worded that, Bob.